You're listening to the Pimp Cron Podcast. Welcome to the Pimp Cron Warhammer Podcast, episode 90. Very excited that we're creeping up on episode 100. Although I feel like 104 should be the thing that we... Uh, celebrate because that would be two full years but you know what we're human beings and we like round numbers it doesn't have to make sense I suppose what are we talking about tonight we have a really good interview with acclaimed game master Del Stover and he joined Shorehammer last year and was running something called the Corvus Cluster and he did an amazing job everybody loved it the board was awesome we have a great talk with him today about how he designs his missions and how he makes his terrain and all of that it's a really good really good talk so we also have Cronet 2 of 4 and she's on and we talk about mortifiers which is a mortifying no you know i'm not even gonna, i'm not even going to make that joke okay that joke is even beneath me that's a terrible pun I'm not doing it, although I may do it in the segment, so just be prepared for that. What else are we talking about? We get a Patreon, yes, Patreon message from Shade, and he is one of our supporters. Thank you so much, Shade. We love you, Smooches. And he asks, you know, have you ever tried to introduce your offspring to this game? What about the hobby, and how do you introduce it to them? So I answer that question in the Tesseract mailbox. So we have a real talk, we have a want that or want that not, and we have a Tesseract mailbox. So buckle in, kiddos, because we are going to party town? I don't know, you know, sometimes I start a sentence and I don't know where it's going. (laughs) That's one of those situations where I'm like, and we're going to Disneyland? I don't know, the bathroom? I don't know, there's so many places we could go. What have I been up to? Well, I gotta tell you, I have finally finished the Brutality Skirmish War game rule book, and I've ordered the prototype book. I'm so, so excited. So I'm just waiting for that to come in, and that's gonna be like the longest week of my life, just to let you know. And uh, I don't know, of course, I'm sure, you know, shipping and all of that is going to be delayed. I've bought some stuff online and it's, you know, shipping is taking longer than you think and blah, blah, blah. So y'all need to stop buying stuff online so I can get my stuff quicker. That's how that works. What else have I been up to? Well, I have been slowly painting and assembling my Borg hive for brutality. Very excited about that. And there's a new model class called a Locus in Brutality, this newest edition. And it's essentially a terrain feature. It doesn't have to be a terrain feature, but essentially it kind of is. And I am making my own Borg Queen on a large flyer-sized base. And it's pretty cool. She's suspended by wires, and I used real copper wire for it. And uh, she has no legs. The wires are coming out of her pelvis and going straight down to the ground, like making her elevated. And one of her arms is missing and she's got wires that go back to a console. It is pretty cool. I'm very happy with it. I am currently painting it. I have assembled it. I have primed it. And now I'm painting it. And it's very, very cool. Uh, I also already had made a Starfleet away team for Brutality years ago before they ever made any miniatures of Starfleet people. And one thing, I made them out of Heroclix, 
And one thing that always kind of bothered me about them is they're just slightly smaller than I would like them to be. Not all Heroclix are like that. It's actually weird that Heroclix have like different scales for no reason at all. Some, I'll just make some stuff up. Like one Captain America from one set will be 28 millimeter. And the other one almost seems like 25 millimeter scale. It's just a little smaller for some reason. And several of these people seemed just a little small. So I ordered from Modifius, I think it is. Modifius makes the RPG, the Starfleet RPG that's out. And they make pretty cool models. I'm uh, They're kind of like fine cast. They're like a soft resin, which I'm not super thrilled about. But they do have like anonymous away team members. So it's cool. There's two Andorians, two Tellarites, two Denobulans, two Vulcans, and two humans. If any of those words mean anything to any of you, uh, I'm a huge Star Trek fan. So if you said Denobulans, I'd be like, ooh, Dr. Phlox from Enterprise. But see, none of you would know that. Probably none of you. And that is essentially what I've been up to. Been, uh, work's been kicking up, so we've been working a lot. And I am just excited, so, so excited to get my Brutality Skirmish War Game book. And when I see that, uh, when I look upon my book and see that it is good, then I will put it up for sale. Until then, uh, you know, I want to make sure the colors come out right and stuff like that. So I'm just kind of in a holding pattern. My entire life is on hold so that I can wait for this book that I've worked for three years on to be delivered to me. Let's get on with the show, because I have a feeling tonight's going to be a little long. Let's open the Tesseract mailbox. Hey, all you cool cats and kittens. It is the Pimpcron, and it's the Tesseract mailbox we are opening right now. So, we have a message from one of our Patreon members. Shade. And Shade writes, Okay, how about... Have you introduced your children to the hobby? And if so, what do you find is the best way to introduce a child to war games and the hobby elements? Well, number one, thanks for writing in. And this was actually via Patreon message, um, as opposed to facebook.com slash pimpcron or pimpcron at gmail.com. I appreciate you writing in shade. And I have a couple things to say about this. First off, Getting children into the hobby is super, super easy. I'm not talking about the game just yet. I'm just talking about the hobby in general, not the game at this moment. The hobby is very, very easy for children to get into because children love to make a mess and children love to paint. Also, children love toys. And let's face it, our miniatures are just simply toys that adults play with. The only difference between our playing with toys and a child's playing with toys is that we rely on rules that we agree on and they don't like rules at all. And that honestly is what I have found with children. Um, my oldest, Cron uh, Jr., he does not really care to play wargaming that much because he says there's too many rules and he wants to make up his own stuff. And I completely sympathize with that. When I was his age, I would be making up my own rules for games and things like that. And I never wanted to read a rule book. I can't tell you how many times we played Monopoly and made up our own rules because I didn't want to read the rule book. We played Risk all the time, and I made up my rules for that. I didn't know the rules. I still, to this day, don't know the rules to Risk, and it's because we always just played our own our own rules. Now, we did make rules, but it was our own, you know, and 
adults seem to like more structure and adults seem to like more agreed upon rules where children really want to be creative and they want to be in charge. And as an adult, we're always in charge of everything, charge of your bills, charge of your work, charge of your household, whatever. And children are never in charge of anything. So whenever they play, they really want to be in charge. They live their entire life in school and at home and wherever else. And they're always listening to us. There's always some rule. Don't do that. Don't say that, you know, quit licking that. Don't eat that off the floor. You know, don't hit your sibling, all of that stuff. And those are always not their rules. They're our rules that they must follow. So I have found that children really, really like to make up their own rules, which is kind of a segue into saying that children will play wargaming if you make up some very streamlined, very fun rules, and you kind of play like a D&D sort of thing where you're the dungeon master or the game master, and allow them to do things that they want to do, and just kind of figure up a mechanism for it. Hey dad, my space marine wants to open up this door that's locked. Okay, on a three up you can do it, or something like that, or just let them do it. open up the damn door, like whatever. Um children want to do their own thing. So I would definitely make it fun and easy and free and do not use any of Warhammer's rules, basically. I used to have my two oldest play Warhammer with me. And what I would do is essentially the Space Marines were all, you know, captains or whatever. And they had many, many wounds. And I, of course, would fudge the wounds, you know. And I would make up rules as we go and things like that. And all of their weapons were like assault three las cannons, essentially, where it was like really good chances of hitting and wounding and all of that. And to this day, they still talk about a game that we played when my oldest two were maybe eight and six, something like that. And I played my Stompa versus their two space marines like just tactical marines and both of them had painted two tactical marines and the stompa was going after them clearly i did not use the real rules for the game because the stompa would kill the two tac marines in a heartbeat but they were able to go up there and climb on the stompa and jump up there and you know rip its arm off or whatever and we just we made a, a fun time about it and the kids to this day are like, hey, Dad, remember that one time we played with your Stompa? That was really fun. So if you want to do something, make sure it's very easy for them to follow the rules. Make sure there's lots of dice rolling. But I don't mean lots of dice. I'm saying lots of dice rolling. So if you, I would not go more than you know three or five dice at a time as far as shots or attacks or wounds or whatever. You also probably don't want to... I believe when I played with them years ago, I actually took the wound phase out of it completely. It's like, hey, you hit on this. Okay, you get to save on this. And just, just fudge it that way. If, if one of the kids is rolling really badly, then, you know, go, oh, you, look at that, you rolled three ones. Well, every time you roll three ones, you get to re-roll your hits or something. <laughs> uh, so just be that's the children, basically. But as long as they're having fun. And if they start getting bored, then, you know, switch gears and introduce more enemies onto the field or, or whatever. Um, children are very, generally very easily entertained and they don't like following rules so that's what you should do focus on the fun not on the rules and make it up as you go make sure they're having fun just like a game master or a dungeon master would do 
And like I kind of referred to earlier but didn't fully explain, the hobby is super easy for kids to get into because they love miniatures, they love toys, and they paint and they enjoy painting. So all the colors and I mean, what is most of what young children's stuff is in school anyway? And besides math and maybe writing, the rest of it is all crafts. It's all, oh, let's glue macaroni onto a sheet or finger paint or whatever. So painting with a brush for children is really cool. And also, once again, they are in charge. They don't have to paint it a certain way. They can paint it however they want. So I'm certain you have some, you know, miniatures lying around or whatever. And I would suggest that you just give them to the children, like, you know, starter set tack marines or something that you totally don't care about. And uh, also, you know, one thing I like to do to actually, I don't even have to use my Warhammer models. I have a huge bin of hero clicks, just random hero clicks that a friend gave me. And I use them a lot for conversions, like for brutality and things like that. But there's, I separated it, this massive box into a smaller box of things that I would like to keep. And then the remnants of it is still a massive box of random hero clicks that I don't want. And my children love to go in there, rummage to that box, and find something. And to keep them, of course, they want to keep all of them. So I've, I've had to limit it to, hey, every time I let you dig through this box, you can keep one model, pick your favorite model, and then we're going, we're going to go inside, and we can paint the model whatever colors you want, and that's your model. And it does have sentimental value to the children. It does mean something to them. And, you know, I mean, you can even teach them some techniques. It's, I mean, dry brushing and stuff is so easy. A child can easily dry brush. And I think they would be super encouraged if they saw the results of their dry brushing or of their whatever they're doing. If you teach them some real techniques, I think they would be even more jazzed about it because all of a sudden what they're doing looks like a professional and not just, you know, something they slobber on. <laughs> slobber onto the model. Really, the word would be slather, but I, I think I'm sticking with slobber. So hopefully that answers your question, Shade. Thank you so much for supporting us on Patreon, and thank you for writing in to the Pimpcron Warhammer Podcast. Want that or want that not? Sup everybody, today Pimpcron and Cronet 2 of 4 is here to talk about some mortifiers for Sisters of Battle. What's up, 2 of 4? Nothing really, just kind of sitting here. Okay, just kind of sitting here. That's what we like to hear ever over at the uh, Pimpcron Warhammer podcast, just over here sitting. So, <laughs> today we're talking about mortifiers. Mortifiers! Are you mortified by looking at this? Kind of. So what is this? Okay, you got a blind friend, right? Yeah. Uh, pretend that I accidentally knocked both eyeballs out of your friend, uh, Ella. Okay. Okay, that's not a threat. I'm just saying this is a hypothetical, mm. okay? Ella's parents, if you listen to this, which I'm positive you don't, I'm not, I'm not suggesting anybody knock the eyeballs out of your daughter. I'm just saying if it were to accidentally happen. Accidentally. Accidentally, ha- like I trip and whatever. Okay, so she doesn't have eyeballs now. And she's like, oh, wow, uh, Pimpcronet, two of four, I'm so interested in these mortifiers I keep hearing about. It's all over the school playground. The, okay. The girls are talking about it. What does a mortifier look like, and what on earth is it? Um, they look like dreadnoughts with people trapped inside of it, and they don't look too happy about it. No, they really don't. Yeah, this, the, one of them, you can't. 
like the toes on like she has her legs are bare but she has some like really short shorts on and her toes are like <laughs> it's like the biggest thing on it. You're right. Her one big toe is huge. <laughs> yeah. What kind of genetic manipulation did they do to this poor woman to give her such a swollen toe? <laughs> I don't know, honestly. That one mortifier, like the other one, not the one with the big toe. <laughs> uh-huh. Uh the other one, it looks like she's just trapped in a casket. And the mask on the casket thing looks sad. Yeah, it looks sad. And um, now, you know, a dreadnought is essentially a coffin that, like, someone is too injured to continue going on as a space marine. So what they end up doing is putting them in this sarcophagus, and then he can still fight using Uh. the robot. So I feel like this may be a similar situation, except she doesn't look like she's injured at all. She just looks like she's a prisoner. Yeah. Now, the person in this coffin, who knows, maybe they are really... But look, it's locked. Yeah. So, I'm curious. The Sisters of Battle are part of the Inquisition, and they're very, very mean to people, like, to their own people. Oh, yeah. why? They just are. Yeah. And, um, so I actually feel like, you know, these are women that are probably here against their will. They're not like a Space Marine Dreadnought who wants to keep fighting. Yeah. Now, the Chaos Space Marine Dreadnoughts that call it Helberts, they're just like this, where it's like yeah. a torture to be yeah. in a Dreadnought. But what does this thing have? What, what Does it have guns? Yeah, there's two guns. One on the one side, like the one robotic arm, and the other robotic arm, it has um, the same gun. And on both of them, they have three maces. Yeah, these like, are pretty cool, like flails. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So they'd be swinging those around, hitting people with them. That's actually pretty cool. Yeah. Looks like each one of them has a heavy bolter on each arm. Yeah. And then, like you said, three flails that just look pretty cool. Yeah. And I love the... There's, like, fire on top. Yeah, the fire on the back of them. And, you know, I never noticed it until we started this review process of Sisters of Battle models, but there is so much detail on them. Yeah. Like, like, look at the little banners here and the little studs and the little Inquisition symbol. And Like, if you actually look at it and look at all the things, like, there is, like, a whole chain of bullets mm-hmm. there. Oh, my gosh, it looks so awesome. And also, like you said, that little face on the yeah. coffin looks like it's sad. Mm-hmm. And look right here next to it is a little pad and a little, looks like a heartbeat monitor. Mm-hmm. To monitor the person, so like a, a tech marine or somebody that works on this machine could go up there and like touch the little screen and monitor the vitals of the person inside there. Mm-hmm. This is very cool looking. Yeah. These are dreadnoughts, but just, they look thinner and faster mm-hmm. and just very, very cool actually. Yeah. And the top of them is kind of like peaked. It's kind cool. of like a little church. Uh, yeah. Because they're very like religious- yeah, and then the top there's another one of those like kind of crosses with a T Inquisition with, symbol. Yeah, and a skull inside, and uh, around the skulls like a sun or. But you're right, that lady's big toe. I don't know what is going <laughs> on there. I just don't know. Maybe she was thrown in there because she had a swollen toenail, <laughs> and they're like, "Ooh, here, just throw her in here. She'll cure." Yeah. And uh, but anyway, these are very cool models. So, would you want that, or would you want that not for these? Probably, it's hard to tell. Probably, uh, want that. You probably would want it. 
Yes. If you had this arm, you'd want it. Yes. If I had the army, I would also get this, too. The only, the literal only thing that is keeping me from automatically saying want that for these is the sheer amount of detail on these dumb things. I know. It is a ton of detail. There's spikes and, like... The little test tube things on each... Yeah. Yeah. And also on, like, the other one, there's, like, little circles and then, like... Uh, it looks like really buttons good. with ropes and wires and yeah, yeah. The and only th- spikes on the shoulder pads, kind of thing. The, th- the thing for me is that it's just daunting to have to paint one of these things. It's a yes. lot to paint. A lot. So, but other than that, it's very, very cool, and I like these models. Yes. So, what do you do? Um, probably nothing. <laughs> so it is a want that for me and want that for you. If you did not. See, currently see the price on the screen right here. How much do you think these would be? Probably like $200. $200. <laughs> well, you're not that far off. It's $60 for two of them. That honestly is not too bad of a price. A Dreadnought is probably 50 or 60 bucks, And this is two lighter Dreadnoughts for the same price. So you actually, I feel like you're getting more out of these than you would a regular Dreadnought. And yeah. they're pretty cool. Pretty so, cool. I like them, and I this is definite want that for me. This is one of my favorite units they've come out with. So, thank you for being on two of four. I appreciate it. Uh, me too. Bye. Uh, bye. Hey everybody, it's Pimcron, and today I am joined a by a really great guy that was the highlight of Shorehammer last year, Del Stover. How's it going, Del? It's doing great. Thanks. And I uh, wanted to discuss with you because you ran these narrative battles at um at Shorehammer last year that were a huge hit and it was kind of like a blend of RPG and Warhammer and a little bit of kill teams but it was very narrative and story driven so I wanted to get into that and explain to the listeners exactly how you got into that and how you developed those missions and whatnot but first I'd like to start out by asking when did you get into Wargaming or Warhammer? Uh, I got into Wargaming in the uh in the seventies, uh, as a, as a teenager and, um, started with a game called Tractics, which was a, uh, very complicated, uh, miniature war game. I had no idea what miniature wargaming was and I didn't come back to the hobby. I mean, I, I played it with my friends, but I didn't get back into the hobby per se until the 1990s. Uh, and, um, I started to hear about Warhammer and historical gaming and started collecting miniatures. Uh, so I, I got my start early, but I really only got serious about it about, uh, well, 30 years ago. <laughs> now, I've never actually heard of what you say, Tractics? Yes, it was a amazingly complicated game system when you, it was World War II. And when you shot like a, a, a Sherman tank at a, at a Panzer, you had to figure out the size of your shell, its velocity, multiply it by some <laughs> formula on the slope of the armor. What part of the tank did you you if they had um, handheld calculators back then, you would have needed it. Oh but my you gosh. Had to do long, you had to do long division to figure <laughs> out whether or not you penetrated the armor of the tank. Wow. I mean, that sounds really cool and really realistic, but it also seems really cumbersome. Well, you know, back then we were playing with Airfix soft plastic figures and Roco, uh, you know, those Roco tanks from Germany. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, we didn't know what we were doing. 
<laughs> so when did you get into Warhammer specifically? The 90s or? Well, I started collecting the um, White Dwarf in the 90s. And then um, when they came out in 2000, I painted a couple Warhammer figures. And then they came out with the Lord of the Rings around 2001. And then I, I really got into painting. And then I started seeing all these cool uh, Warhammer 40K figures. And so I started painting them. But I really didn't get into playing until about, oh, maybe seven or eight years ago. Oh, and but, uh, do you play Age of Sigmar at all or just 40K? Uh, no, I've got uh, Lord of the Rings. I've got like about a thousand Lord of the Rings figures. So they're my, <laughs> they're my fantasy army. Uh, uh, Lord of the Rings, I mean, 40K. When I first played 40K, I thought, oh, it's going to be too simplistic and abstract. But I really love the strategy of it uh, and the picking of the uh, units and the planning of the battles. And I just found it intellectually fascinating. And then the people I met were really fun. Uh, and, um, and matter of fact, it was the people that I met at Shorehammer that made me really fall in love with the convention. I mean, the convention was great, but it was the people that I really got a kick out of, which is why I wanted to keep coming back. Oh, well. Well, we're glad you did. That's that's for certain. Uh, a lot of people, they say, this is my in my experience, they say they like narrative gaming for Warhammer and, and Wargaming, but a lot of them don't actually know how to go about that or what that could be exactly. So your Corvus cluster last year, all your games, you blew people away because they had, the, including myself, where we had never experienced anything that, like I said, was almost a mix of RPG and storytelling with the Warhammer rule system it's really really cool so when did you start doing the corvus cluster and can you explain to us exactly what the corvus cluster is because i know it's much larger than just what you did at shorehammer yes uh the, the corvus cluster is a uh almost six-year-old narrative campaign that we started um to give us a background for uh my friends um Warhammer games. We just didn't want to do one-off games. We wanted to create a little corner of the galaxy where we had uh, we recorded our battle reports. We did fiction. We did biographies. We did a little encyclopedia entries on the various planets we were fighting on, so that um, it's not just one-off games. It's like a soap opera where we're building a uh, we're fighting wars. We're seeing characters live and die. And uh, it just puts a lot more uh, background into our, our battles. And you really start rooting for the characters of your, you know, your tank commander. He's not just, you know, a character with a bunch of special stats. He's someone who has fought battles before. So and if you ever played Dungeons and Dragons, a one-off Dungeons and Dragons game fine. But the real fun of it is to create this whole world that you're immersed in and you kind of start to believe in it. And so that's what the Corvus cluster was about. Now you've got a website and everything about the Corvus cluster, right? There's a ton of information on there, right? There's like 300 articles, uh, <laughs> you know, hundreds of pictures. I've gotten uh, fan art from uh, artists from around the world. We've got, you know, followers, uh, you know, we've, we're getting up to 50,000 uh, hits total uh, by this point. That's awesome. And, uh, yeah, and it's 
it's it's not really focused on like we do some terrain building stuff, but it's mostly just building up the universe. We're documenting our gaming, and it's really made a huge difference in keeping us excited about it. Well, something I noticed and I picked up from a lot of the people that tried the Corvus Cluster last year at Shorehammer is all of the stories that they had. Like, oh my god, I ran around this turn, and then, you know, this guy was shooting at me, but I evaded it, and then blah, blah, blah. And this, in one of them, uh, people kept talking and talking and talking about one of your missions, where I think one of them was a spy or was possessed by chaos, but they didn't know who. Yes. And and people just talked, just talked and talked about it. I had heard had the same guy going around talking to several different people, and then someone would chime in and go, oh, yeah, I saw that. I was watching you guys play, and that was really cool. And it was just, it's really cool that with the narrative games that you've set up, people walk away with a story to tell. It's not just, oh, I won, I lost, something like that. Well, right. And one of the reasons I did these uh, these games was, you know, like I said, I wanted to come back to the show, but I thought, Rather than do a tournament, I wanted to just show a different side of the hobby. And, I, you know, a lot of conventions, when you play tournaments, you you have a schedule and then you end up with some dead space. Mm-hmm. And so I thought, well, you know, there's always going to be a few people around who don't have something scheduled. So I'm going to have some of these really short, um, fun games that they can just play for uh, two hours, two and a half hours, and then, you know, in the evening when they don't have an event or if they're playing the afternoon game, but they don't have a morning game, then they have something to do. And it's something you know, that's not just a pickup game, but it's something that, you know, the terrain is really good. The story has been play tested out and, you know, it'll be an experience, not just, uh, you know, just killing time. Well, you are right about the terrain because uh, that just reminded me, actually, I that wasn't in the forefront of my mind. I was thinking about all the stories that people walked away with. But you're right. Your your terrain was dynamite. I mean, you had underground like facilities made of um, individually casted walls and floors from, I think, what, Hearst? Hearst box, yeah. Yeah. And then, um, of course, you had your town with. I mean, even like such little details as like a, a clothesline with clothes on it. And just it really you could just walk up. And even if you weren't playing the game, you could walk up and go, oh, my gosh, like the the detail. It was a custom made map specifically for these games. And this is not the first time you've done this, right? You said you you frequently, uh, I guess, go through boards, make new ones, use them and then and make new ones. Yes, that's something I've been doing on and off for years. Uh, I, I think when you when you go to a convention, it, it's always fun if you can uh, bring something that people won't be able to experience normally. Because most of us, you know, we have it's practical to have modular terrain, so it's a real commitment. Uh, you have to be a little insane to want to <laughs> devote to a dedicated table. But I just love offering that experience to people to ha- let them play something that's just really cool to play on yeah uh, there was it was a, a real delight unfortunately i'm too busy during shorthammer obviously running around with my head cut off to actually play but uh one of these days if i can never get free i would love to play one of the games and join in because uh it's usually what like four players some of them might be six or so yeah i i try to keep it sh- um not many players so it goes fast and everyone has I really designed these scenarios so that I said, don't worry about the rules. Don't worry about trying to lawyer it. Worry about maneuver. Worry about use of terrain. 
and worry about concentration of force. Focus on real stat tactics, and then you, the rules will take care of themselves. Matter of fact, I got the rules down to ten fingers, and I, you know, I said just do this, 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 and then just pretend you're really there, and use whatever tactics you understand about military fighting, and you'll be fine. And and that worked pretty well because people didn't focus on the rules; they focused on I've got to get across this open space. You know, I got to fire at the guy to get him to suppress his troops, make him duck out of sight. And then while I'm doing that, the other guys will run for it. And um, and I saw a lot of really good tactics. People who, you know, did a demonstration, what do they call it, a spoiling attack or a demonstration of force to draw the guy's attention to one side of the table while they attacked on the other side. Um, and it was just delightful to watch. Yeah, uh, it was it was very very cool. Now there's one uh, there's one principle almost about narrative games that I've personally found. I'm interested to see if you agree or not. Everybody likes narrative games for large battles of Warhammer, but my theory is is that let's take um, let's take Saving Private Ryan for if for instance, right? It yeah. was a battle you know, dealing with thousands of people or, or whatever. I mean, hu- hundreds are on screen at least on at one time, but you don't focus on these huge groups of people. You focus on a select few characters and that allows you to connect with them, you know, emotionally. And I find it difficult for anybody to really, really get into a narrative game of Warhammer when you're playing with 80 models, because it's, it's hard to connect to an entire group of 10 people or 20 people but your games, when you're playing a single character and the character is named and the character has a backstory and a purpose, it's so much easier to get into the game because you connect with that one character versus the the 80 that you might normally be pushing around the board. Do, would you agree? Uh, yes, yes. And, you know, my games varied from people having about 10 figures with a independent character, you know, a leader who was really the focus of it, mm-hmm. to um, a kind of a murder mystery horror game where people really were one character and they had a couple of uh, bodyguards or sidekicks, but they were really playing a character. Mm-hmm. And that was one of the one uh, ones where it was uh, basically a gene stealer infestation. And whoever was infected, there was a chance someone else would be affected and they'd have to change sides. They had a card that told them if they were human or, uh, infected and they had to pick a new card halfway through the game. So they might all of a sudden switch sides in the game, which is where that backstabbing came in. Although in one case they brilliantly solved it. The inquisitor just killed everybody <laughs> and, and they died too, but it was like, Hey, I'm here to protect the empire. Um, that's the, my, that was my solution. It really threw me for a loop, but I also <laughs> I loved it. I mean, I just loved it. It was brilliant. That, and that seems pretty in character for an Inquisitor, too. Right. And one of the things I did was I told everyone that if um, that these games were part of the Corvus Cluster, and they were part of the Corvus Cluster, so whatever they did was going to have an impact on the history, on the rest of the narrative campaign. So when the Inquisitor stopped the Gene Stealer infestation, that's going to make a difference in how fast the gene stealers, uh, the Tyranids, spread across the Corvus Cluster. And when um, the uh, Death Watch killed a um, 
tau or captured a tau ethereal, it messed up the um, the tau invasion of, of one of my planets, and so now the tau have a slight disadvantage because of that. So there's going to be repercussions of all those Shorehammer games. We're going to have a repercussion throughout the rest of the year as we continue the campaign. That is really cool. So you, um, when you decide which games to play in your own sandbox narrative, um, is it just what strikes your fancy? Like you might fight on, in this battle on this planet, this one game, and then when you're kind of bored with that, you might go over and deal with the towel situation. Or is that how you choose games? You know, the fun thing about a, a narrative approach to 40K is that it can go in directions you don't expect. I mean, mm -hmm. sometimes I have um, played a one-off game, and it's led into a little mini-campaign within the larger campaign. Mm. And other times, um, something will happen. I ran into a fellow uh, in Europe uh, online uh, and he, for a while, ran his campaign within the Corvus cluster. So we started yes. having all these, uh, read, uh, writing about all these adventures going on in Europe that were really, you know, in one corner of the Corvus cluster. That's and really cool. You, just, you never know what's going to happen because you, 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 you do something and then it leads to ideas for something else. And so a one-off game I did years ago, I ended up, uh, the only player who came because of the time of it was he was 11 years old and he was brilliant. I mean, he knew how to, he ran circles around me. But that started, <laughs> that one-off game uh, woke up the, the Necrons um, in the Corvus Cluster. And since then, it's gone from just a little occasional rumors that I post and, you know, little vignettes that are saying, you know, because I do these rumors about what's going on around the, the Corvus Cluster. Now, I built an army, uh, and we were starting uh, a whole new campaign within the overall campaign. It's a Necrons fighting on this planet. So now all of a sudden I have a 2,000-point army, and now there's been that one-off game turned into probably seven or eight blogs, a couple kill team battles. Never saw that coming. I had no intention of doing Necrons, but it, once the story takes off, you just follow it. That is really, really awesome. And like you said, it gives weight to your different games. Instead of just playing one-off games that aren't in a particular setting or narrative, it's very cool to actually be impacting the overall story. Um, now, I did have a question. It, at Shorehammer, you are pretty much the game master. Um, you know, you're the one that runs the game, and the players participate, and you, if you have to, you have to play the NPC enemies or whatever. Um what do you do with your personal games? Do you still have a game master or do you and the, the other player, you know, just kind of run it together or how do you do that? Well, it varies. I mean, um, sometimes it'll be just one friend and I, and we'll just do a straight up, um, 40 K battle. Uh, usually it's set within one of the war battle war zones that we have. And we, often we'll tie it to what's already happened although sometimes we'll just do something new and then throw that on the on the uh on the blog and um it sometimes it we never come back to it and other times it, like i said it just takes off other times uh depending on what i'm trying to accomplish like sometimes i let everyone play one side and then i kind of have a um 
formula for the other side. So you could imagine you were doing a SEAL Team 6, but with, you know, like, say, um, Space Marine Scouts. And so you want to run up and slit throats and, and, and sneak up behind, past guards, you know. So I will figure out the odds of being able to do that, roll the dice, and then I'm more like a dungeon master. I'm not, we're not role-playing, but I'm saying, what does that guard actually see? How would he react? And then I give a little randomness to that he might turn around because he hears a noise. And so the all the players are on their they're on an adventure, and I'm just going through the formalities of what their opponent is doing. And I roll the dice for the opponent, and I play them as logically as possible. But I'm not actually playing against them. I'm just trying to direct the story, and that's how some of the um, that's how some of the Shorehammer games went, and others. The two sides, after the second turn, the way I design, I simplify the scenarios and the rules, they've got it. And they're just fighting each other, and I just get to sit back and watch and have fun watching. That is really cool. Um, now, uh, another question I had for you is, how do you go about making these missions from the setup of it to the way that it's actually going to play to the deployment of enemies um do you set it up similar to the way you a dungeon master would for instance like um you're going into this castle there's going to be guards the the dungeon master already knows there's going to be guards in this this and this room you know they're equipped this way blah 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 do you do you organize it that well ahead of time or is it a little more on the fly make you know mixing things up and making them variable no, um, what I'm really trying to give people besides the story is a good tactical game where they don't end up sitting behind in cover and rolling dice. I want them to be moving. I want them to be thinking about, uh, you know, how do I outflank? How do I cross an open area? Do I, I can go through cover on this side of the table, but then I, there's a little chance I'll be bottlenecked if they rush and counter me. Mm -hmm. So I, I play test these games like five or six times um, before I bring them to the show. There was one, one scenario where I had reinforcements coming on uh, three at a time. Uh, it was a very specific scenario. Three was too many, but two was too few. So I did a random die. You did got you know you either got two or three. That didn't work. The only thing that worked was two one turn, three the next. That got the right balance where the attackers could move forward and the defenders had to do desperately to slow them down. But by going two and three, there was a chance for the defender to get enough reinforcements to eventually build up a wall that made it right at the crucial end of the game where it was an almost fair fight and it really just depended on how well the defender had defended up to that point and how well the attacker had attacked up to that point. And I, it took me six times to figure out that balance so that it was just whatever you did, it was going to be on the decisions you made, not the dice. Hmm. Now, do you ever fudge anything like a DM would during a game? You know, if if the game is going a little too easy or a little too hard in the middle of a game, will you just kind of, do you ever roll behind a, a curtain or anything like that to like fudge it a little bit to make it more, you know, cinematic or whatever? Well, there is that temptation. 
And it, depending on the kind of scenario, like when I was doing that horror mystery scenario, um, some of it had to go on the fly because people were it had a little bit more role playing in it. It wasn't they were actually making voices and everything, they, they, but they were making decisions. And sometimes they'd make decisions that would just totally floor me. It's like I never thought of that. Yeah, but then I would have to I would have to adjust it. But I, I, I try, I will do it, but I try to avoid it because what I want people to do is to be rewarded for their tactics. I don't want one side to be artificially slowed down because they're playing so well. I mean, I want mm -hmm. the other side to have fun too, but if I play test it well enough, then it really, if it's not going well, it's just either incredibly bad dice or... They just aren't very good with tactics, and the, or the other side is just brilliant at it. I, I had one or two players in the at Shorehammer that were just stunningly brilliant. Uh, yeah, that is sometimes an issue when you're dealing with narrative things. I run that run into that a little bit with the uh, 40k and, and Age of Sigmar narratives that we run at Shorehammer because people often they are used to the normal way the game plays. And if you throw a mission at them or a different deployment at them or some other sort of variable that they're not used to, sometimes they lock up. And, and some people can't handle that that variety very well. I'm sure you run into that, too, sometimes. Yes. Uh, one of the things I do is I, I don't... Uh, we were playing it at the convention. We were doing uh, the... Uh, before a kill team came out was Shadow War uh, Armageddon which I think really captures man-to-man -man action really nicely. and But I try to emphasize to people to not worry about the mechanics. If the mechanics are easy enough, you'll pick it up by the third or fourth turn. The main thing was, I'll walk you through it, but think about what you're doing. And one guy was facing an overwhelming attack on one flank, and he did exactly the right thing. He just started falling back. He would sacrifice a guy sometimes to, to slow him down, but he fell back until he got to a wall, uh, Promethean pipe and he put everyone behind it, behind hard cover. And even though he was outnumbered, he, his defensive position was so good, it all of a sudden the other side had to go, oh, I can't keep going forward. I'm going to have to outflank. And so mm. they, were thinking, they were thinking big picture tactics. You know, they weren't thinking about, oh, I'm going to pull this stratagem or I'm going to do this rule. It was about, like I said, maneuver, use of cover, concentration of force. And I saw outflanking attacks and then people falling back because of the outflanking attack, but then turning around and putting themselves in a position where if they kept advancing, then they would be outflanked. That was where I wanted people to be focused on, not on the die rolling or the, or, oh, this is a plus one and all that. I wanted them to have fun being a general or, you know, a sergeant in, in the game. And it was pretty successful working out. That's good. Yeah, I heard nothing but good from the, the whole thing. Um, and like I said, between the board, the missions, the everything, everybody was super floored by it. So you, I did not get a single negative comment at all about your games. Everyone really, really liked them. And they were very, very different from anything else. Um, even at our convention, I mean, we have narrative battles, but you're talking 24 people, you know, like huge yeah. narrative battles. And it's hard. It's harder to tell a story when you've got 24 players. Um, so it's it's really neat. Um, 
I, I actually got sometimes, you know, I always ask people uh, what they thought of things afterwards. Like when I'm running the big narrative battles, I go, well, William, what did you think of it? Did you like it? Did you not? And it's funny. Sometimes you run into somebody that made poor tactical choices, but then they're like, oh, well, the, the game wasn't fair. And uh, I had one last year. He uh, They were in the sewers in our large game. And he was vastly outnumbered by Gene Steelers. The Gene Steelers were all beneath him. And he, for some reason, he had he could have climbed up higher away from them. But for some reason, he dove right into him. And obviously, in a turn or two, he was dead. And then afterwards, he's like, well, yeah, I just, you know, I just got killed by all those Gene Steelers. It wasn't really fair. And I was like, well, you did, you could have went up instead of down. And the, the look on his face was, oh, Oh, I guess I could have. Like, yeah. <laughs> you're not, it, it's not necessarily the game. Like, you could have went up instead of diving into Gene Stealers. So it's just, it's funny. There's certain variables in games where sometimes it's the player, sometimes it's the game. And like you said, sometimes it's just dice rolling in general. It's just terrible. So. Well, yeah, there's only so much you can do about that. And, you know, all you can do is, you know, that's the nice thing about a small game is that I can be watching all the players, and um, if I see someone struggling, you know, I can point out to them, well, what would you do if you were really there? And then, you know, they'll go, well, I'd run like hell. And I said, well, <laughs> think about that. If you did that, you're outnumbered two to one, they're shooting you up. If you run back and get into a better cover, what do you think? Or, you know, some, do something else. And all of a sudden, you know, the, the light bulb goes off and it's like, oh, yeah, of course. And, you know, because you can get so locked in on rolling the die and like, oh, I'm stuck here and I've got to do that. And all the scenarios I try to make that you have to move. So that way uh, they're, they're trying to solve a problem and they, they can't, it, it makes it a little less likely. It doesn't prevent it, but it makes it a little less likely that that they'll get locked into the, you know, that myopic view of what their situation is. and There's no way out. Now, see, that's a really interesting thing you just brought up, is that how you as the game master, if you see someone struggling, that m maybe, like you said, is is uh, tunnel visioned into a certain path, you can kind of nudge them, hey, what about this, and offer them options, which, I, I mean, I've done in my personal life, like as a DM in Dungeon you know, D&D, where a player might be doing something that's really dumb, and you have to go, well, are you sure you want to do that? Are you sure you don't want to, you know, or, or give them some options? But uh, it had not occurred to me that you also have that ability in your games where you can kind of nudge them one way or the other if they're going to make a, a terrible mistake. Right. And I, sometimes you have to let the, the other player, it's unfair to help a guy too much. So mm -hmm. you have to, especially, you know, in D&D, it's okay because you're all fighting as a group against a NPC. When you're fire, fighting an opponent, not that, you don't want your opponent to all of a sudden have a face because like, oh, great, you know, I'm... I'm outwitting the guy and now you're, 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 you're double, you're, you're sabotaging me. I want to win my, I want to earn my victory. So, uh, I try to limit it to things like, well, what would you do in real life if you were there? Think about your, your concepts of concentration of force maneuver. And I try to emphasize that right at the beginning to, to get them thinking that way so that they don't get caught up in, you know, which gun has a plus one to hit or, you know, that kind of thing. I, I really wanted to focus on those basic military tactics. And I think it makes the game so much more fun because it's just more intellectually challenging. And you just 
quit worrying about the details and you focus on the experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's definitely a different type of experience than a normal game. And I think that's why everybody liked it so much. Um, it really stands out as its own thing completely, even separate from Kill Teams or something like that. Because Kill Teams is still basically a normal type of game where, oh, it's just me and you fighting rolling dice, knowing all the rules, metagaming, that sort of thing. And like you said, you're injecting this narrative into it. And uh, I think you you come off with really different results. And, you know, like I said, I'm a huge fan of it. I'm a huge fan of game design anyway and narrative battles and things like that. So watching what you do there is really fascinating to me because, you know, it's it's right up my alley and it's really interesting. So I I did want to uh, mention one last thing. Um, we've been talking for a little while, so I, I won't keep you forever. But I did want to mention your terrain. So you must really, really enjoy making terrain because the the level of detail, like just just hand casting all of those corridor walls and the floors from the hearse, you know, the hearse molds and all of that stuff. I mean, it, it came out as something you would almost see in uh, Warhammer World or something. It just the detail was amazing. And all the little, you know, consoles and furniture and stuff like that really blew people away. So you must have a second passion in terrain creation. Am, am I right to put so much time into yeah. it? Yes, I actually have a workshop in in my backyard uh, that is basically full of all these funny tools that allow me to do modeling. Uh, got a milling machine, um, and I spend a lot of time out there building terrain uh you know modular but then like i said once in a while i'll i'll get i'll get the uh i'll get the attitude i gotta do something special and then i'll sit down and i'll develop something really detailed uh for a convention so that people can you know just have that experience of something special to play on Mm -hmm. yeah it, it really is something that sticks with people because there's that wow factor. Um, now you've said before that you have been to other conventions and ran other narrative games. Was it something in the vein of Warhammer or was it historical? What, what were those games? Well, the whole reason I got into one-off games, you know, like two, three hours was that I, I, I go to these, uh, historical miniature gaming society conventions. They're, uh, uh, basically, anything from ancient Egypt up to, you know, SEAL Team 6, uh, modern day. And, uh, of course, they have some fantasy and sci-fi. And those conventions, they have tournaments, but they're mostly not tournaments. They're mostly one-off games so that you can play two or three different kind of events at a time, uh, take, a, take, a, take a period off, and it's very flexible to you. And... Hmm. Um, so I started, uh, I loved that so much. I found out I liked running games more than playing them because I play quite a lot as it is. I don't need to go to, some people don't <laughs> get to play except at conventions. Uh, but I, I, I have plenty of gaming opportunities. So I said, you know what, I like running games. So I, then I, it just led into me building um, scenery. And then I started building dedicated scenery. And I've got, three or four uh, historical games that I, I pull out um, or tables I pull out every once in a while and take to a convention. And there's a dedicated p- uh, dedicated port. Uh, there's um, uh, a, uh, a little uh, inn in the country, English countryside 
where I actually had a 1960s British mobster um, fight. Um, That's cool. I, I do all kind of I do all kind of scenery, and 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 I, I like to do dedicated when I can. Although after a while, I have so much I have to throw some out, and it's like, oh, it just killed me. <laughs> I and bet I, that does kill you. Yeah, but it's okay. I mean, because I just I do it because I I got a new idea I'm all excited about. And I'll end up spending 50, 100, 200 hours uh, working on a, on one of these tables. And I'll put electricity into it. I'll, you know, put all kind of little details that if you look really carefully, you know, it's like, oh, it's actually a, t- there's actually a urinal and a toilet in the spaceship. There's a, <laughs> there's a bathroom. Or there's a clothesline. Uh, how often do you see a clothesline in a 40K game? Um, yeah. So I put these little, I like to put little, humorous little details so if you just keep looking around the table you find you find something you know kind of amusing yeah there was um yeah this the clothesline i don't know like you said it's such such an odd thing but that clothesline really struck me (laughs) because it's not something you normally see i was like oh my gosh that's a real clothesline with little clothes on it so yeah anyway well I think that's about it. Um, honestly, those were all the questions I had for you as far as regarding the Corvus Cluster and how you make your missions and how you make your terrain and how you got into all of this. So um, I, I greatly appreciate you being on. And like I said, you've been an, an awesome addition to Shorehammer. You fit perfectly in with the vibe of you know casual narrative gaming and, and friendliness and making friends and all that. So we're very, very happy to have you again for Shorehammer 2020, Dale. Well, thank you. I'm 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 planning something new and uh, new and fun, and uh, I'm uh, looking forward to seeing everybody. It's a great group of guys. Well, <laughs> it's good to hear from you, and yeah. uh, we'll, we'll, I'll stay in touch as I make some progress. Send you some pictures as I go. 